The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. Guy Jodarski. He is a doctor of veterinary medicine based in Nielsville, Wisconsin, where he works in organic and sustainable livestock practice with an emphasis in dairy cattle herd health and, most importantly, disease prevention. Dr. Jodarski holds an MS in physiology and a doctor of veterinary medicine from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he has been in practice for over 30 years. Dr. Jodarski serves on the One Health Committee of the Wisconsin Veterinary Medical Association. We're going to be diving into that. He is also a member of the American Association of Bovine Practitioners and the National Mastitis Council. And he is currently serving as lead veterinarian for an organic dairy cooperative based in Wisconsin. Welcome, Dr. Jodarski. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you for having me. Well, I happened to hear you speak at a webinar for registered dietitians to help us understand a little bit about the difference between, say, conventional dairy operations and organic And I wonder if you can just tell me a little bit about how you became interested in being a veterinarian. Well, okay, so that goes back a ways. My family had a small farm, and so I always was interested in animals and had an episode where the veterinarian came to the farm, and I was very impressed with that. And so I really thought that would be an interesting thing to do. And I took a circuitous route and, and didn't quite go straight to veterinary school, but I ended up there mainly because of uh, livestock animals. But of course, when you go to vet school, you learn about all the animals. And what was it that led you to go from a more conventional way of practicing veterinary medicine to one that is more organic and sustainable? And if you could tell us maybe some of the main differences between those two. Yeah. So I started in the late 80s in veterinary practice in a conventional practice. And um, we really haven't moved in uh, over 30 years. So I'm still in that area in central Wisconsin. So, you know, Wisconsin was known as the, and still is known as the dairy state, a lot of dairy. And so I worked in that practice for 12 years. And, um, you know, one of the main differences and, and it really, I think the differences have gotten bigger over time because back then a lot of cows went out to pasture and now that in the you know, conventional world, not many cows ever get to the grass. That's a big difference. And really after 12 years of practice and then really small herds. So we were seeing individual animals with health problems, so cows with health problems. And the health problems were mainly brought on by the management of the way the cows were managed. So keeping them inside too much, feeding them. Cows are really meant to eat forage, grass, and hay, feeding them a lot of grain to get more production. And so that really kind of brought on a lot of health issues. And so, you know, what's the difference? The difference is the way they're fed. Grazing is a big difference. 
production levels, of course, are lower in organic because for of the dairy in general because they don't feed as much grain to the cows. And the cows do more of the work going out to the pasture. And because of that, we have less of the uh, acute health issues on the organic side. You know, it's pretty well documented that the veterinary expenses for a dairy herd are less for organic farmers. And really the, the whole thing about it is it's really based on prevention in organic because we're limited on the options for treatment. Now, of course, if we have an issue that really needs antibiotics, we can't withhold that in the organic uh, system. But if we use antibiotics, the animal is no longer organic. So those are some of the differences. I'm really curious about how the cows are managed on a conventional versus an organic farm, because I think a lot of consumers are interested in knowing the differences in the kinds of milk that they see in the supermarket. Of course, as a dietitian, I'm very concerned about antibiotic resistance, and I'm sure this is a discussion in the One Health meetings that you attend. But how often are conventional cows given pharmaceutical agents, whether it's antibiotics or hormones that make the cow produce more milk? Give me a picture of what it's like, say, in a conventional facility versus one that's organic? Well, there would be a, a medicine cabinet in, in probably both situations. And the one in the organic farm would be less used. And there would be more natural salves uh, and a, a few things like aloe vera liquid in there, maybe some garlic. And in the medicine cabinet on a conventional dairy, there would be antibiotics. Although I would say antibiotic use has decreased in recent years because of the pressure because of antibiotic resistance and consumer pressure to not have so much antibiotic use. So that has declined some, but really one of the big differences are the hormones and that is the reproductive hormones where cattle are given hormones to force their estrus cycle, their, their breeding cycle, to make it more convenient to keep the cow pregnant or get the cow pregnant again, because a cow will give milk after it has a calf for a certain amount of time. And that amount of milk declines over time. And so she has to get pregnant and have a baby again, have a calf again. And so it's important for commercially to keep that process going to get the animal pregnant again. And so the reproductive hormones are part of that picture. And some of these are really used a lot out of convenience where you can actually what they call synchronized cows so that they all come and heat on the same day. And so on some of the larger dairies, there'll be dozens of cows that'll be set up with injections of hormones so that they can breed them all on the same day. It's very labor efficient. And so that's that's a big difference there. Mm. Let's talk about the lifespan of, say, a cow in a conventional dairy versus the lifespan of a cow in an organic system. Because they are pressured to produce more milk and to conceive more frequently, do they have shorter lifespans on a conventional farm? Yes, uh, definitely. We know that the commercial dairies, on average, a cow lasts two lactations. Now, it takes a cow has to be about two years old to have its first calf, and it's about a, a one-year cycle because it's a nine-month pregnancy like a human. And so about once a year, they'll have a calf. So usually about two cycles is what most of the conventional cows do. So they'd be four years old, or maybe even a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, right around four years old on average when they leave a conventional herd. Organic herds, it's hard to pin the figures down. So if somebody really presses me on this. I can't give you the direct data because a lot of it, we don't have the records. But I'll tell you anecdotally that we see much older cows. And, you know, the real difference is 10-year-old cows. Uh, you don't see 10-year-old cows in commercial dairy herds very often, or if at all. 
Whereas in organic herds, uh, most of the farms, even with 50 cows, will have two or three cows that are over 10 years old. And we have some that get up to 15 and 16 that still have a calf and still milk. And I know we've had a few that get over 20. So there's there's quite a difference. There's, there is some variability between the organic herds. So to give you a, a direct, accurate figure would be tough. Mm. Well, I'm interested in in the livestock operations from a perspective of what happens to the cows when they're done producing milk. Do they all go to become hamburger? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and that would be, uh, and, and that does happen on the, on the organic side too, although you know, it would have a much longer life. Yeah, that's the salvage value of the cow is the meat. And because the animal uh, is not raised like a beef animal, it's not as fat, it's not as, uh, you know, the, the meat would be a little tougher. And so, uh, you know, ground beef is a big part of where that would go. Uh, I'm sure some of it's boned out for other products, but yeah, it would be uh, meat is uh, is the, uh, so, you know, dairy farmers are also considered beef farmers in a way because a lot of the, at least the fast food hamburgers uh, would come from uh, dairy cows that reached the end of their life. Wow, that's interesting. You know, with so few of us living on farms, I think we're so separated from the whole series of life events that happen. So I'm really glad you're walking us through this. One of the other issues you brought up early in our conversation that, you know, Wisconsin is known, it's the dairy state, right? But the number of farms have been declining in Wisconsin, and it's hard for dairy farmers to make a living anymore. What's been going on? I think you mentioned, you know, when you were young, there were hundreds of thousands of dairy farms in Wisconsin, and now there's, what, less than 10,000. Yeah, there were over 100,000 when I was born, and maybe when I was high school, it was about 50,000, and uh, vet school was probably 30,000 or so. And it's just been on a gradual decline, and we've, last I've heard, it's under 7,000 now. But what's happened is the the smaller farms, although they've gone out of business, their bigger farms have expanded their herd size. And so we have about as many cows as we ever had in the state. And they're making more milk because the management, the feeding is refined. And so the production is higher. So there's actually probably more milk than there's ever been, even though there's all less farms. And that's had a big toll on local economies. The little town that I live in, we've lived here 30 years, and there were three feed mills uh, for serving the local farmers. And there are no feed mills within 25 miles of here now. Everything becomes centralized because the operations are bigger. And so there's these efficiencies and everybody talks about efficiency. And that's unfortunately the side effect of that is you lose the small operations. And that's what's really happened is the, and dairy was, you know, kind of the final frontier in in livestock agriculture for that because, you know, the poultry and and hog industries had consolidated and gotten quite big quite some time ago. And it was more difficult to manage cows and people have figured it out now where we've got these dairies that are 5,000, 10,000 and more cows, which is just mind-boggling. Hmm. So it seems like from an efficiency perspective, this would be a good thing. But we can't always just pigeonhole our discussions about sustainability on efficiency. We have to talk about the social environment, the environment itself. What else happens when a rural community loses those small farms, what are the negatives to having all of that efficiency? Well, you lose a lot of economic activity from those small farms because they spent on small businesses and they had children. And so the schools had a higher population of, of children. And the 
the communities were more uh, vibrant. There were more stores. You know, we have a lot of downtown here in our town. There's a lot of closed storefronts and so forth. And so, you know, and part of that's the the people don't shop in the little town because the town that's 45 minutes or an hour drive away has the bigger stores with the cheaper prices. And so I think, you know, the drive for lower and lower prices, and, and you know this well in food, has had a, had a bad effect on socially in, in, in the farming areas, but also on our health, I think it's had an effect. Right. So I want to backtrack now and I want to get back on the farm and I want to talk about the cows again. I want to talk about what they're eating. In an organic system, the cow is going to be fed a set amount of, as you mentioned, forages, hay, grass. They need to be grazing. But in the conventional system, they are going to be eating more grain. Now, the organic system also does not allow genetically modified foods. So there's no GMO corn, no GMO soy. There's also GMO alfalfa. And I think we need to understand what that means exactly. So what does genetically modified corn, soy, alfalfa mean in terms of its production? It means it's sprayed with glyphosate and the organic forages and foods would not be sprayed with glyphosate. Is that correct? Yes, you're you're correct there. And you know, besides glyphosate, there could be other herbicides, pesticides used uh, in organic system. We don't allow any of that. We don't allow chemical synthetic fertilizers too, which would be another thing that would affect those crops. So, I think to talk about genetically modified or GMOs, the industry that that produced that technology rather call call it genetic engineering, because uh, genetically modified organisms sounds kind of scary. Well. It's really not so much the process of doing that that's really negative so much because when you think about it, uh, genetic engineering has brought us some good things. Humans that are diabetic depend on genetically engineered insulin. I just got a COVID shot recently. Those vaccines are actually, they're kind of marvels. They're messenger RNA vaccines, which is a very interesting technology because what it does is your cells actually make copies of parts of the virus so your immune system can respond to it. So genetic engineering may have some applications. I, I am nervous about changing life. About I, I don't like that. But you know we can't just dismiss the technology. But where does the technology, what's the purpose, what's it used for? And I think this is the problem. We pointed it out really clearly is when we're, the goal is to use herbicides because you're making a crop tolerant to being sprayed where the weeds won't be. That was the goal, you know, and it makes the farming simpler. You know, the farmers in some ways like that, but there's all these other side effects that build up that are important to consider that really haven't been probably considered enough. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I, I totally agree with your point about assessing each application of genetic engineering. And we can't just say yes or no. Each application needs to be assessed. And Certainly in human medicine, there have been, as you mentioned, many advances. But with regard to farming systems, I am concerned about the herbicide usage. I need to take one break because I know we're at the halfway point, but I want to dive into that topic when we come back. Let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Guy Jodarski. He is a doctor of veterinary medicine. His area of expertise is in livestock practice, especially with organic dairy cattle. Now, let's dive into this whole issue of genetic modification on animal feeds. So corn, soy, alfalfa, those are the ones that we're going to be focused on. 
So most of these crops are sprayed with glyphosate or what many people understand to be Roundup. And because of weed resistance, these crops are now being sprayed with an increasing number of herbicides, especially 2,4-D and dicamba. But the way glyphosate was sold to farmers and consumers was, yes, it was going to make farming easier. It was going to help control weeds. But the consumer was told that there would actually be less herbicides used, and we're finding that to be not the case. But we've, we were also told that these herbicides are safe. And in the presentation that you gave to dietitians, you described how glyphosate in particular affects minerals and affects gut bacteria. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, it's important to think about all those other things too. And, and really, the residues themselves is controversial. And really, supposedly, they breaks down, but we really have, there's conflicting studies that show that the residues persist. But as far as the action of glyphosate itself, this is just one herbicide, and it's the most, it happens to be the most popular herbicide in the world, the most widely used one, really millions and millions of pounds used in, in the U.S. and around the world. Each year, over 90, 95% of all the corn and soybeans uh, have Roundup resistance bred into them so they can be sprayed with glyphosate. So it's a widespread chemical. And the way glyphosate works is two ways. It actually is a chelator, which means it binds minerals, and it can bind uh, trace minerals, which are very important cofactors for enzymes. They're very important for nutrition. And so some of the critical cofactors, you know, uh, the enzymes are in, uh, inhibited because the, the trace minerals aren't available. That affects immune function. And, and some of these things are, you know, downstream effects are a little harder to measure. So that brings in some of the controversy about who did the research on what, what does what. But the other part of the uh, mechanism for glyphosate is something called, it inhibits something called the shikimic acid pathway. And the shikimic acid pathway is a way of the body of, of mostly microbes and plants and fungi and a few parasites make uh, aromatic amino acids. So we know we have like 20 amino acids that, that are important part of protein, important part of nutrition. Our, all the protein in our bodies are built with these building blocks of amino acids. These aromatic, uh, phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan are what we call essential amino acids, which we have to eat them. Our bodies can't make them. So we're really dependent on, on the production of these essential amino acids. And what we know about when you inhibit this pathway, this shikimic acid pathway, is you can't make the aromatic amino acids. And so it shuts down those pathways. Now, interestingly, it's not just the amino acids and the proteins that are affected because aromatic amino acids are, are precursors to other vitamins like folate. They're precursors to plant defense compounds. They're precursors to neurotransmitters, dopamine, now these sort of things that we know. And what we're learning now is that, you know, our bodies are really inhabited with a lot of bacteria where colonies, where these microbiomes are interacting. And so some of this is quite unknown as what the effect would be, but it's, you know, it's just common sense that you shut down pathways. It's not going to be good downstream. And, and one of the really clear demonstrations, Dr. Don Huber an agronomist from uh, Purdue University who's re retired, talks a lot about glyphosate, and he has a lot of scientific information. But one of the things that really is striking is when you grow soybean plants in pots and you spray them, and if you spray them with glyphosate, if the soil in the pot has been sterilized, the plant will not die. So it's really not the glyphosate that kills the plant directly. It's basically the glyphosate knocks out the immunity of the plant 
And then natural fungi, which are, you know, they cause wilts, they cause, uh, you know, mildew type diseases, that kills the plant. So basically, you, you immune suppress the plants. The ones that are genetically engineered have a different form of the enzyme in the shikimic acid pathway, so they can overcome this inhibition. Although that comes at a cost, you know, one of the promises of GMOs was that it's going to be a better yield. It actually is a worse yield. So when you do something like this and you make a variant of an enzyme, there's a metabolic cost. So the the yields, there's yield drags on glyphosate on GMO crops. And part of that is the chelation. You have to put extra trace minerals on these plants. And I know that's quite a bit. So where should we go with it from there, Melinda? Well, this is all very interesting to me in terms of how all of these systems are affected. And one thing that Dr. Huber has always emphasized is you can't change one thing without affecting everything else. And I think that too often we tend to narrow our focus on one section rather than looking at the broader or larger system. And I think that your work on the One Health Committee of the Wisconsin Veterinary Medical Association lends well to this conversation because what One Health really looks at our interconnectedness, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And that's that's really important. That's you know, that's a concept, both a, a health concept and an ecological concept. And so, you know, I mean, Chief Seattle was one of the really famous people that basically said man is part of the web and whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. And that, that's the truth. We are connected. And so when you put things in the system that break connections, you're going to have changes that are out of your control and may not be good. And so I think, yeah, you're definitely onto something there. Well, I have to think about the soil microorganisms impacting the plant nutrition that then influence the animal nutrition and the human nutrition. So I'm sure you've looked at some of this where if you're spraying a compound on a plant that binds up minerals, you mentioned you've got a, you know, the farmer then has to reapply those minerals that would be chelated out. I have to wonder about the nutritional quality of that food and how it affects both the animals and the humans. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's a real good point. And we know that trace mineral, mineral levels in general in our, in our foods have gone down. And that could be part to the due to these, these chelators or the, you know, these chemicals, but it also is it's due to soil health itself, which has to do with our agronomy practices. So you know, one of the things this technology does is it allows monocultures on a large scale. And so we can go across the corn belt and we can see, you know, millions of acres of corn and soybeans and it hardly get rotated at all. And that really cuts back on the life in the soil because the, you know, the amount the farmers have figured out and the agronomists have figured out what they need to feed that plant, what fertilizers they can put on and get the yields. But there's really very little you know, compared to a perennial system or an organic or a grassland system, which has a deep root structure, which really is going to be recycling a lot of nutrients. And that's going to make more nutrient dense plants. And like you pointed out, the animals and humans consuming those plants are going to be healthier. Mm -hmm. I know you've spent a lot of time on organic farms as well as conventional farms. You've learned a lot from farmers, as have I. What are some of the lessons that you've learned that you want our listeners to know? Well, there's three big things I think that are really important. One is to get in touch and make connection. And so we talked about everything being connected. And I think we all are connected and we're connected to each other. We're connected to all of life. And so I think one of the things is we have so much information coming at us. We have so much technology. I think sometimes we have to get out of our heads. And what I mean by that is we have to stop 
the constant train of thinking and really get in touch with nature because we have this nature deficit problem. So that's point number one, get in touch, make connections. If that's gardening for you, if it's having a compost, if it's just going to the park, people talk about tree huggers. Well, that's not a joke. It's hug a tree. You know, just touch the bark and feel the texture. Just get involved with something in nature. That's number one. And that the farmers, you know, you probably asked what the farmers teach about. They teach that you have to really look at what's going on. It's not a cookbook thing. You don't just do this at this date or that date. You look at what's happening in the farm. That's what the in touch part. Number two is balance. And I kind of hit on that already. Balance between mind, heart, and soul. And so we are so driven to be intellectual and thinking. And sometimes we have to really listen to our hearts and feed our soul. And so I think those are the spiritual side is really important to health. And so it's enough said balance. Mm -hmm. Number three is unity, is that everything is together, everything works together. And so when you affect part, you affect all of it. And so we're all in this together. And that's not just us people, that's all of life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I think because so many of us are removed from the farm, it's so important for us to go and visit farms and meet farmers and the people who are doing this work to get a better understanding of of their keen observations. And I think the best farmers are keen observers. But when farms get so big, it must be difficult for farmers to even have relationships, not only with the land, but their livestock as well. Yeah, I mean, and you're really out of touch. And I, do I have time to just tell a quick story? Sure. Uh, so I was in practice for 12 years, and then I left practice and went to did some other work for a while. And it was related in the livestock industry. And then I went back and did some part-time work and some of the dairies had gotten much bigger. And I went to a dairy that used to be a family that had a dozen herds uh, spread around the area and they had built one big dairy with over 2000 cows. And so I'm working in my old conventional practice before, you know, I was just starting to do organic things. And they had me do reproductive checks, which is basically you go in and, and you feel if the cow is pregnant. And so I did, you know, like 150 cows or so. And, and, because they have 2,000 cows and they have you on the synchronization program. And the synchronization program was such that they had hormone shots and they had a hormone shot to set them up to get them ready for the second shot, which actually induces the heat. So if I diagnosed the cow open, she was primed for her next shot. And so there was a, a laborer alongside me with a, with a syringe, with a pistol grip syringe, which is a multi-dose syringe. And as soon as I would say the cow was not pregnant, he would give her a shot. And what that shot would do would bring in a heat in two days. So we were there on a Wednesday. They're going to breed all the cows on Friday. Well, in this course of this process, I found three cows that were in heat that day. They were perfect heat. And I had been breeding cows as part of my other job. And so I knew that they were ready. And they have what they call artificial insemination. They have a semen tank. And I said, get the semen. This cow's in heat. She's ready to breed. And they looked at me and they shook their heads and they said, no, that's not the program. That's not the program. The program is we give them the shot and we breed them in two days. And so they were so trained by the drug companies. It's called a protocol compliance that they wouldn't see what was really happening. Mm -hmm. They were set in the program. And this is the problem of modern cookbook type agriculture programs is that they're just doing it by the schedule. They're not looking at what's happening. And so they ignored my advice and they gave them a shot and they were going to breed them two days later. Well, I know that those cows were past their heat. They weren't going to come in heat again. And so they wasted a whole injections and all their process just because they were not willing to look at what's happening. Mm. Well, we need to hear many more stories like this to really understand our food system much better. Unfortunately, our time is up, so we've got to close. But I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, a doctor of veterinary medicine, Dr. Guy Jodarski, and he is an expert in organic and sustainable livestock practice. Dr. Jodarski, thank you so much for your time today and for helping us understand a little bit about what's behind the dairy and meat section in our supermarkets. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you, Melinda.